Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, "What the f are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass." So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you could possibly think of has its own history, like pasta, marriage and hills. Or drains, rains and cranes. And get this, get this one. Planes, planes and planes. Uh, by which I mean <laughs> aircraft, <laughs> tools and land features. Uh, all <laughs> Can you get words that? that sound the same as well. All words that sound the same. But I think, <laughs> Sam, we should do fish and roads. Um, yes. You've, you've been doing some quite uh, amazing fishing recently, haven't you? I have been doing some amazing fishing recently, yes. So uh, Instagram been... told me. <laughs> yeah, so Instagram, yeah. Uh, uh, fishing off the east coast of Australia where you get big, scary fish. Oh, um, so amazing. But I've also been doing some um, other types of more gentle fishing around Devon. Um, but I, I think the history of fishing is amazing. I think uh, we should genuinely do fascinating. It. We should I was, do it. I, I was at a pub just up the River X, uh, up by Xbridge, where they've got photos of the locals around the pub. This is a very sort of narrowing bit of the river um, up by Exmoor with pictures of the salmon that they used to catch there. Mm. And they're. They're the size of sheep. It's ridiculous. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and um, I think we would be... It, it would be such a profound way of teaching us about about how the world's natural fauna and flora has changed just to put anyone in kind of... in, in Within reach and, you know, visible distance of the type of fish that they used to catch in rivers and um, at sea. Those uh, are enormous really, you know, fish. The middle, of the middle of the 19th century. I mean, yeah. a genuinely extraordinary. There's a, there's a huge fish, Sam. The fish the size of a sheep. Yes. That's absolutely. enormous. I, I would love <laughs> such a fish. However, we digress monstrously because what we mm. should be doing and what we will be doing is following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew uh, that the history of taking stock here and my uh, milestone birthday, uh, the number 50, is in fact all about models of how we interpret the past it's about headlines on the 3rd of december 1972 it's about the remarkable meanings and symbolisms of the number 50 it's also about the fascinating history of the 50 pound banknote and the notion of historical figures on the back of legal tender who knew or who knew that the history of spots 
is in fact all about female beauty and false advertising in the 19th century in the United States of America and the strangely titled arsenic wafers, which it was advertised were entirely safe and ensured a blemish-free complexion. It's also all about the diary of Adrian Mole, aged 13 and three quarters, the history of acne, teenagers and dermatology. Did you know that, Sam? (laughs) <laughs> yes, just on the, the edges of my mind. <laughs> just talking about the history of spots, we should do the history of stripes next, I think. Ooh, the history of stripes oh, would be very good. Um, wonderful stuff. Uh, let me tell you a little about uh, my fellow presenter. If history were the Millennium Falcon, he would be both R2-D2 and the C-3PO of the past, the most reliable and informative historical droid of them all, the man to whom you would all turn in any sort of chronological fix. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. Uh, As ever, we are on very similar wavelengths, even though we are researching this independently. You may well, you may well be wondering who is that unattributed voice so ably helping Daybell co-pilot this very episode. Well, let's just say that if he were a robot-related historian, he'd only be the Peter Crouch of the historical world. So impressive (laughs) is his robotic dancing in the archives. There's nothing automotive about this daredevil historian. So original and unrobotic are his historical powers. He ain't no metal Mickey consigned to the dustbin of the past. C-3PO gone all rusty with server malfunction. No siree, Bob. This historian's the real deal. Yes, you've guessed it. It's the famous historical adventurer, Dr Sam Willis. Hello, everyone. Um, I think you can tell by our uh, uh, flushed introductions that we've had a bit of a break <laughs> and we're quite excited to get back to we, it. It's been, have, been a long time off, hasn't it? It has been a long time off. What have you been? Have you been reading anything good since we've been off? I've been reading an incredible book. Um, Hmm. that I have been boring everyone that I've met in the last month with. And have you heard of an author called Annie Erno? So E-R-N-A-U-X. She won the Nobel Prize for Literature this year. Uh, She Hmm. is a French writer, modern French writer, and she wrote an amazing book called The Years. And it's a writer's book, but it's a historian's book because it chronicles the uh, second half of the 20th century, first sort of few years of the 21st century in France from a female perspective. It's written in a sort of autobiographical sense, but without being about her. It's written as a sort of collective autobiography of a nation, and it goes through from the Second World War, end of the Second World War, through the 50s, through the 60s. You hear about her growing up in a Catholic country, uh, hear about her you know, having an abortion age 23, uh, getting married, uh, and then this sort of backdrop of what is going on in in France, in the West, politics, social revolution, the rise of consumerism, the women's movement, civil rights movement. It is one of the most extraordinary books that I have read in many years. And although it is a it won a a prize for literature, it is deeply, deeply historical. So if you read nothing this year Check out Annie Erno, uh, The Years. And there is a wonderful podcast on uh, the Shakespeare & Co. podcast. Shakespeare & Co. is this wonderful bookstore on the banks of the Seine, uh, just by Notre Dame in Paris. Uh, it's an English bookshop. 
and they had her along. Uh, they interview her. She talks in French. She reads in French. They have her translator there. They had her, her American publisher who brought her French writing to uh, uh, English-speaking uh, public. Uh, absolutely phenomenal. There we are. I'm, I've, I've got it out of my system, Sam. That's good. Did she say anything about robots? Because that's why we're here today. I know. She, she is very unrobotic. Oh, okay. The opposite of robots. That's fine. That's fine. Because she's very, very human. Because to understand robots, then uh, we need to think about what the opposite of robots is. Um, exactly. But actually, James, I think to um, to start with someone who is uh, so full of human ideas and thoughts and talent at her writing as this lady is actually a brilliant way of starting to think about robots. So we are here today to talk about robots. Um, and uh, it was your idea. What was going on there? It was my idea. And do you know what? I... I came about thinking about this because I came across something called chat GPT have you come across this yes chat oh my god it is absolutely phenomenal um I I did a little experiment on it uh, let's just tell everyone what it is James a chat GTP is basically it is an AI so an artificial intelligence device that you can ask questions to and then it will write you a response and mm. and I had a go at this and it is utterly I mean utterly phenomenal what was coming out of this I was playing around with this earlier on Sam and I asked it the question what is the history of robots so you ask it this <laughs> and then you can put in how many words you like uh, and literally, as soon as I typed it in, pressed submit, it started uh, saying, writing to me. Uh, the history of robots dates back to ancient times when automatons were used to perform simple tasks. In the early 20th century, robots began to be used in industrial settings, performing repetitive tasks such as welding and assembly. In the 1950s, the first programmable robots were developed. And by the 1970s, robots were being used in a variety of industries blah 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 and so it goes so it goes on absolutely extraordinary i also put in uh, why is uh, history of the unexpected so brilliant and he came <laughs> back and told us precisely why and it was because of our rapport it said oh. so we might, i know extraordinary and then it and then i said who is sam willis and it knew exactly who you were. Um, but then, for some reason, uh, none of your television programmes were correct. It, oh, you know, it, it, it came up with a whole load of things. So I think it's... it's I mean, the, the reason I'm getting at this is because basically what we've got is artificial intelligence here that is sort of um, surfing Next across level, the... It's, it's, it's what, sorry? Next level. It's the it, sort of the newest, it's, latest It's, thing, it's really it? next level, but it's actually not as good as people thought it was going to be. I think there's a lot of fear among, certainly among teachers, about students using it to sort of plagiarise their, you know, to write answers for them, write coursework for them. Uh, so I had a little sort of test. It's something we're, you know, talking about in academia as well, um, for exactly the same reasons. And I had a little try at it. And it's actually not very good at the moment. I'm sure you can teach it. It's not very analytical. Uh, but what it is good at is going out and sort of digesting a load of stuff for you. Um, it's yeah. just what it doesn't have at the moment is a kind of truth check. <laughs> so it's got, yeah. it, so it, it's it's going from all over the place. 
Um, I thought the, the history of robots it read out was interesting because that's actually the definition of why it's no good. Because in the great uh, university of histories of the unexpected, that attempt at the history of robots would fail. It was awful. Yes, it was. You know, it's dreadful. plodding nonsense. You know, it, it's it's a uh, it's like it's got a conceived idea of what history is and what the solution is, and it's just a, a list of this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. Which, yes. as we know, here history is more sophisticated than that. So. This, even though this has been in the news, I do believe there's nothing greatly to be feared by it. However, let me pick up on this question of fear, because I think that's actually what robots are all about. Or Ooh, certainly, there's a very, um, very interesting way of looking at them. Um, and I've always been interested in the way that robots, well, uh, not, not even robots, more like the idea of robots has threatened so much about society, about how we perceived ourselves, about how we believed we got here. It's all to do with religious thought, with self-perception, self-determination, fear of the future, our understanding of history. It's absolutely fascinating stuff. Um, I think the Victorian period is quite an interesting place to start because even though you've had automatons being built and designed and clockwork as well back from the Middle Ages, automatons particularly in the 18th century, the Victorian period, where you have this rise of machines, you've got coal, coke, furnaces, steam engines, and so immense power, which has never been wielded before, but it's combined, and this is the important bit, it's combined with precision and precise engineering. And if you've got the combination of those two, then you can start to make machines that can do things with immense power, but also very precisely. And it was that precision, I think, that really got everyone quite frightened about the potential of robots in the Victorian period. I mean, to the extent, you could be one of these massive steam hammers, right? So that could flatten a railway sleeper. But at the same time, it could be programmed to crack the shell of an egg without breaking it. Uh, and that made people wonder... I'll talk a bit more about what I mean by people, but it made people wonder about their role in life. So were humans going to be replaced by machines? Um, it's not just that they could do jobs that humans could do. They could do jobs that a hundred humans could do, that a thousand humans could do, that some humans couldn't do at all. Even, you know, th that's the whole point about it. It, it. it kind of, it broke through the understanding of capability and that made people really very frightened indeed so you know you've got this sense i think of people being threatened and that's why the the, the chat chat bot thing that we started talking about has got people talking as well just because people i think feel threatened about the way that they learn the way that they absorb information and also the way that they're taught. Now, this Victorian thing in particular, because it's all to do with muscle power, it's actually all to do with revolution. It's the kind of thing that Marx would have been interested in, because if you've got strong machines that can replace human muscle power, then the people who are frightened about losing their jobs are the workers. And that is the kind of thing that really unsettles society. So it's not the people who are inventing machines, the educated, the clever people, the scientists, the engineers, it's everyone else who suddenly wonders about how secure their jobs are. And um, I, I think, yeah, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop there. I'm going to stop there. So um, yeah, just to conclude, I think, you know, the Victorian period and the fear associated with robots is a really interesting place to start. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, I think there's there's that constant fear about what they will do to society, isn't there? And I think one of the big fears nowadays is about the use of robots taking away people's people's jobs. Um, I think it's one of the things around the the sort of increased mechanisation of the railway industry in this country um, being taken over by machines, being automated is you know, largely what's behind some of the sort of train strikes that we're seeing in the country at the moment. Um, I think one of the fearful things about AI is that it will be able to do things in a sort of teaching world and in a university world, in a sort of processing world uh, that we've used humans to do and therefore what do what the humans do instead. And I think there's a lot of anxiety around that. Um, there were some really interesting wreath lectures uh, a couple of years ago about the the sort of the future of AI across all sort of fields of um, politics, uh, military, economic, uh, and actually in the military sphere, the use of drones, so robots there, um, unmanned, you know, no human life, um, but with with massive potential, and you can equip them with. Yeah, you know, you program uh, a drone that is equipped with AI with certain criteria, and it could go you know, potentially go into a country and wipe out all males, um, you know, between um, you know below the age of sixty, <laughs> and and you know, and if you've got enough of them, it can go and just find people and exterminate them. So there's real sort of fear there. I think in you know you talked about the victorian period i think in in science fiction as well there are there's a sense in the early 20th century when writers are sort of thinking about about robots coining these terms uh for the first time that they are seen as you know quite dangerous technological uh devices uh take for example um a play by the czech playwright karl kapek uh, which was written in 1921, and it's about these sort of mechanical men who are built in a in factory assembly lines, and basically they turn against the human masters. Um, think about somebody like Isaac Asimov, uh, who's one of the first people to coin the term robotics in a short story in 1942 called Runabout, and actually he is much more positive. Uh, about the impact that robots might have and rather than seeing them as this sort of this threat you know he sees them much more as um 
you know help meets so people who are servants that will that will help man in in particular ways and there's a sort of series of laws uh that he that he posits about you know not wanting to uh injure human beings no human being should come to to harm robot obeying orders uh and then there's a, there's something around uh self-preservation of a robot so long as it it must protect itself so long as it doesn't come into conflict with the first or second law in other words not to harm humans um so you know so there, there's some really interesting uh, work around that if we think about it, robots in popular culture as well you know when you think about the sort of cyborgs the sort of terminator movies you know things like that um there is a sense there that um you know robots taking taking control uh and learning um things there's a film i can't remember what it i can't remember what the film was now but it's a film where and somebody will probably you know know exactly what this is you may well know what exactly what this is but it's a film where um they uh, a group of people i think it's either underwater you can see how poorly i remember this the reason i remember it is that they go on to some uh spaceship and there's a malevolent force uh, that is trying to kill people and this malevolent force has these lasers and the la they're going through this sort of passageway and the lasers are kind of at leg height and the first person who walks there um he gets his legs chopped off uh the second person coming through is able to jump over it and then the machine the malevolent force and machine uh basically uh, learns that humans jump over it and their aim is to kill humans and instead of having these sort of uh, beams that are on one level they form a grid of lasers that basically just sort of cut people into chunks so there we are there's a sort of you know a little um little sort of foray into picking up on your idea of fear and and robots and you know and how i suppose how in popular culture and in sort of science fiction, people have conceptualised um, robots and the the impact that they might have on humankind in the future. Mm, fascinating stuff. It's worth thinking about where who who can kind of see robots. Like robots for us are everywhere, aren't they? All sort of automated things. Um, but in the past, that was very different. And the best way of thinking about that is to go to Bern in Switzerland and look at the Zeitklogger, which mm. is this amazing um, mechanical clockwork clock in the clock tower, which has um, uh, fabulous creatures that come out and um, display things. It's all to do with um, their perception, the, the sort of the 17th century perception of. Um, time in the city and how everything had to be ordered and had to be structured and how people actually came to slightly resent this. But the point is that this is one of the uh, most famous examples of automated clockwork as both entertainment and as a means to um, control and order society. But it was after this period in the 18th century that people started making the most wonderful automatons, so little creatures that moved on their own. They could even draw things or, or, or there was there's one like a writing boy it's called he could actually write and by changing some cogs at the back you could actually um, get it to write certain letters into certain things so it was the earliest uh, one of the earliest examples of of programming as well and mad magical things like uh, swans that could flutter their their feathers and um, very famously someone actually invented a flute player with a, a silver tongue 
um, and artificial lungs to blow on it, and then finger, and then uh, these wooden fingers which were covered in skin to actually create the very soft closing that requires um, over the holes of the flute to make make the noise. Um, all of these amazing 18th century uh, automatons were were private. Only the wealthy could see them. So there was a real difference between these early. Uh, clocks, the mechanical clocks like the one in Bern, which everyone could see, and then the objects that were made by the most talented artisans in the country, in all of Europe, um, and they were either put on display, but with exorbitant uh, ticket prices, and also restrictions on who could come in. So the aristocracy could come in, but they weren't even allowed to bring their servants, and that meant that these uh, really most remarkable automatons were very much for the eyes only of the aristocracy. Now, with this kind of setup, it really didn't take people very long to um, start poking fun at the aristocracy and their obsession with automatons. And, and as soon people realised that there was a bit of a link between the automatons and the aristocracy. And the aristocracy were then, uh, were then identified as being like automatons. They were humans, they had no feelings, they were just um, stick figures covered in lace. Um, very different to the uh, well, the, the whole point about this, of course, is it's easy to be an automaton, and um, it was uh, implied it was easy to be a member of the aristocracy, but it was not easy to be one of these talented uh, craftsmen, talented artisans who actually made these figures. Now, this spread right up to the king. I'm thinking of the king of France here during the French Revolution, and he was described as an automaton with a crown. And this is one of the kind of key moments where the uh, uh, the royalty in France were made to be seen as machines, unthinking, uncaring, unempathetic machines. And once you've turned something into a machine, then it becomes easier to destroy. Uh, and then that, of course, leads on to the French Revolution. Now, after this period, it's really interesting how the nature of automatons then changes. So you've got these... Uh, aristocratic ones for an aristocratic audience who look and are dressed in an aristocratic fashion. And what happens in the 19th century, and particularly there's a huge growth on people making automatons for the Chinese market. And that's because trade with China from the end of the 18th century um, uh, and onwards, in fact, uh, back back through time, right back to the beginning when we started bringing silk across and all of the other wonderful Chinese inventions. It was very one-sided. We, The Chinese had stuff that we wanted by the ton, and we did really didn't have very much to offer in return, with one exception, and that was our technological genius. And in fact, if you go to the um, Forbidden City, there is still an entire section of it, which you can visit, which is full of clocks. It's full of European clocks. And the Chinese were completely obsessed with the Europeans' ability to make mechanical objects that were very, very precisely engineered. And so you end up having um, a whole host of automatons in the 19th century created specifically for the Chinese and the Oriental market. So they go from being these very traditional European, aristocratic-looking men and women and kids to really bizarre, crazy European visions of what the Chinese wanted. And um, it, most of the the uh, most of the crazy concoctions were were actually hit the nail on the head, and they were sold, and they made a lot of people a lot of money, which is why so many of them are now visible in China today. Uh, fascinating, Sam. Um, I think if we take that sort of 
you know, very broad definition that robots are these sort of mechanical devices. Um, there, there are really, really early uh, conceptions of robots that go back, you know, to sort of three thousand BC. Um, you know, back to back to ancient China, back to ancient Egypt. Um, there are sort of conceptualizations of of sort of early robots in classical Greece and Rome. You think about also um, you know, Egyptian water clocks and human figurines to strike hour bells are the kind of automatons that you're automatons that you're you're talking about. Um, so I think there's a really interesting history there. Uh, one of the early examples that I came across was a the brazen head which I'm going to talk to you about and it came about it in a rather circuitous route I had a rare trip to the British Library uh, last Friday which was magnificent and I spent I have a new digital camera and I spent a very pleasant day just hoovering up uh, digital images of manuscripts for a new project on separation and I met up with a really dear friend of mine who lives in Australia a literary scholar um, and we talked for a long time over lunch. She has a new project, would you believe, on the history of bubbles, Sam. And we've written on bubbles. Oh. Um, and one of her, the readers of her manuscript said, ah, oh, you should do speech bubbles. And I I didn't necessarily think that it fitted the sort of, you know, the, the sort of concept that she was that she was talking about with bubbles. But it led to me, there is a connection here. This is Histories of the Unexpected. There is a connection. It led to me Googling speech bubbles and one of the things that came up was a lovely 16th century woodcut so a woodcut is it's a it's a way of putting an illustration into a an early or rare 16th century uh, book and the idea is that basically you would take a block of wood you would carve out a picture in it uh, there would be a little bit of the wood raised um, that you'd then put print over you would then put it onto the paper and lo and behold there would be uh, the image and this image appears in uh, Robert Greene's The Honourable History of Friar Bacon and Friar Bungay uh, which is a an Elizabethan uh, play um, and it's about the medieval polymath uh, Roger Bacon uh, who was um, yeah, who was a sort of had sort of um, all sorts of things, and like those sort of polymaths, was sort of on the on the fringes of magic and alchemy. And what this shows is him and his friend uh, Friar Bungay um, uh, on either side of the picture, and in between them is this brazen head. Uh, and this brazen head is effectively a robot that you can ask questions to. So it's a bit like chat, you know, a, a sort of 16th century chat um, bot, um, AI chat bot. And they're asking it, it questions and coming out of its mouth, are, they're not speech bubbles, but they're sort of speech furls or speech flags. Time is, time was, time is past. Um, and the whole thing is rendered in a, a play form. Um, but it has a much more, a much sort of longer history, all the way back to somebody like um, like Odin um, and the head of Mimir in Norse uh, paganism. Um, and this idea that you have these sort of um, a brass head, 
uh, or bronze head that is an automaton um, that you can ask questions to. Uh, it's connected to a range of scholars such as you know, Roger Bacon, who I've talked about, and, and that is connected to their, their sort of wizardry. We see it mentioned, things like this, mentioned in, as early as William of Malmesbury in 1125 in his History of English Kings. Uh, there's a passage in there around Pope Sylvester II who travelled to Al-Andalus uh, and had some sort of, stole some secret knowledge uh, through demonic uh, assistance um, all sorts of sort of stories like that um, that we see through this sort of medieval tradition and then it being put into this this play uh, in the Elizabethan era uh, and the play is a really really fantastic uh, play um, it has a really interesting sort of range of sources that go into it really interesting storylines uh, in it. it at the heart of it is the idea of of um, Prince Edward who's one of the main protagonists who's the son and heir of King Henry III uh, and he plans to seduce uh, the fair maid of Fressingfield, Margaret, with the help of the titled uh, Friar Bacon, who is a necromancer. And so it's all this sort of intrigue and plot. And at the heart of the story is another sort of subplot where, which is revolves around Bacon and his magic. And throughout we see these sort of set-piece scenes where he shows off his various sort of magical skills... Um, there is a magic glass that you can ask questions of and sort of see the future. Um, he magically is able to transport himself from one place to another. There's a magical contest with a, a with a, a, a German, um, and various sort of things like this. And also, the, one of the sort of greatest achievements that is represented is this creation of this artificial talking head made of brass. Uh, that is, that is brought to life by this sort of yeah, this sort of demonic magical uh, influence, um, and this is very much at the at the heart of of this um, of this tale, or of this play. Sorry. Um, so there we are, Sam. Um, there is a, a connection between bubbles and uh, and Robert Greene. <laughs> amazing stuff James amazing <laughs> stuff I've hugely enjoyed that um, thank you very much for listening to our history of robots we're going to come back with the history of um, what we're going to do hills or stripes James oh, or fish <laughs> what would you like fish. to do what would you hills would be good hills or stripes mm. either either we might, we might have done hills we've definitely done hills valleys we've done valleys we've done valleys oh we should do hills then Mm, interesting. Uh, let's do fish first, though. We're fish, do fish first. Fish, fish first. Uh, we'll come back to you guys. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Please follow me on social media at Dr. Sam Willis. And if you're interested in maritime history, as you all should be, the history of the sea, please listen to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. And you can follow me on social media on Twitter at James Daybell. You can follow the podcast at Unexpected Pod. We are also on Instagram and Facebook, so come and make friends with us there. Check out our website, historiesoftheunexpected.com, for our back catalogue our magazine uh, and signed copies of our books still very much available even though we are after christmas now it is valentine's day i can I imagine <laughs> nothing saying 
Nothing says I love you more uh, than a signed quote, Histories of the Unexpected book. Uh, we are also on Patreon. Uh, so if you'd like to support what we're doing to change the way in which people think about the past, head, o- head over to patreon.com and Histories of the Unexpected. But meanwhile, stay warm in this very chilly weather. Um, do you know what? I, I slid all the way to the train station the other day, literally down a hill. I held onto a wall and my trainers just skated about 100 metres downhill. <laughs> Terrifying Very stuff. Very good. Very good. Good stuff. Uh, that's it for now, guys. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.